0: Listening to the Charleston to Charleston Literary Festival 2019, recorded at the historic Dock Street Theater in
1: Charleston, South Carolina.
2: Well, I guess I don't know whether to say good afternoon or good evening, but uh, welcome to the final event of this year's Charleston to Charleston Festival. It's a little bittersweet because this session brings a close to a magical four days I've heard some people express amazement that the festival has grown so much and attracted so many attendees in a mere three years. I'm not surprised. From the moment Debo Gage came to me almost five years ago, I knew it was going to be a tremendous success because I've seen the genuine hunger for a focus on the literary arts and a forum for the free exchange of ideas. Without question, all of us have experienced the best of those desires in the last four days. For our last session, we have three very powerful and polemical speakers to stir our minds. I'm delighted to introduce Philip Howard, Lionel Shriver, and Jeffrey Harpam. Philip Howard, a lawyer and civic leader, is the founder of Common Good, a nonprofit organization that advocates for simplifying government. His current book, Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left, proposes a blueprint to replace modern, bureaucratic government intervention by taking personal responsibility. His previous book was The Rule of Nobody, Lionel Shriver, who we've already enjoyed so much this week, is a renowned novelist and short story writer, as well as a journalist, who is not afraid to stick her head above the parapet. Her most recent novel, The Mandible, A Family, 2029 to 2047, is a satiric vision of a near-future fiscal collapse set in America. The Observer newspaper described it as all too chillingly plausible, profoundly frightening. Matthew Duncona, who was supposed to be chairing this session, had to withdraw due to the recent announcement of the British election, which he's covering as a political journalist. Graciously taking his place is Jeffrey Harpam, senior fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. Lionel and Philip, we'll each present first based on their books and jeffrey will then lead a discussion and invite questions from the audience towards the end of the session please help me welcome them thank you <laughs>
0: I don't read Braille. (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) I'm curious how many people here have read The Mandibles. Okay, we're gonna make that more by the end of this day. Um, The Mandibles is about money and It's set, uh, it begins in October, 2029, which of course, in my usual heavy-handed way, makes it exactly 100 years after the stock market crash of 1929. And um, I'm going to read from very early in the book. You already uh, are aware that there has been a um, challenge to the dollar uh, that was put together by uh, China, and Russia and a consortium of other countries, and uh, they are trying to replace it as the world's reserve currency. Um, And in response, uh, the American president, who in 2029 is Hispanic, um, is going on television and addressing the nation. So this is his speech. Good evening, fellow Americans. At the beginning of this century, extra-national terrorists hijacked our own airplanes to rupture the Pentagon and destroy the World Trade Center. More recently, in 2024, our vital Internet infrastructure was cataclysmically paralyzed by hostile foreign powers. Modern warfare comes in many guises. During this past week, our nation has once again been under attack. No towering skyscrapers have tumbled. Both the physical and digital systems on which we depend continue to function. Yet the attack we are currently sustaining is potentially no less devastating than nuclear missiles hurtling toward our cities. What has been targeted is the very medium through which we trade with other nations and conduct commerce with one another, the medium through which our labors are rewarded, our debts are repaid, our tables are laid, and our children are secured medicines for their ailments. What is at risk is no less than the almighty dollar itself coordinating their chicanery, countries that wish this nation ill have played on the cowardly compliance of our allies. In the last 10 days, a sequence of carefully timed financial dominoes were toppled, designed to raise the cost of financing our national debt, which would translate into you, the American taxpayer, keeping less of your hard-earned income. Our currency was also sabotaged on the international exchange markets. Most perfidiously of all, world leaders who resent the power, prestige, and success of our great nation have cobbled together the so-called Bangkor, an artificial pretender currency with no history as legal tender. Make no mistake. The Bancor is not intended as a harmless alternative to the dollar. It is meant to replace the dollar. In a move every bit as threatening as raising a gun to our heads, we have been informed that the crops and raw materials on which we rely for our daily lives and livelihoods must now be traded internationally in Bancors. A gesture of exceptionally high-handed insolence The United States Department of the Treasury has also been apprised that American bonds held by foreign investors must henceforth be redeemed in bank cores at an unfavorable exchange rate capriciously chosen by an international monetary fund gone rogue. American bonds sold to foreign investors must henceforth be denominated in bank cores, which is a challenge to our very sovereignty as a nation. Ironically, the parties behind this organized fiscal coup immediately suffered from it. The American dollar is the lifeblood of international banking and the backbone of financial markets around the world. That is why, as most of you know, we suspended trading on the New York Stock Exchange last week to prevent precipitous loss of wealth. But trading has also been halted in the wake of the same shock to the system in London, Paris, Berlin, Moscow, Hong Kong, and every other major stock exchange across the globe. International finance is holding its breath. As with every other crisis for more than a hundred years, the world awaits for America to act. And this brave country never sustains insult without reply. Right before addressing you, the American people, this evening I convened an emergency session of Congress. Almost unanimously, your representatives passed a bill deeming that until further notice for American citizens to hold cores, either onshore or within the confines of our financial system, shall from this point onward be considered an act of treason in the interest of preserving not only our present prosperity, but our future prosperity, in the interest of maintaining our integrity, our capacity to hold our heads high as a nation. Americans and American entities are also forbidden from trading in bank abroad. For the time being, and only for the time being of course, capital above the amount of $100 is not to leave the country These controls are temporary, their duration destined to be brief, and they will be lifted the moment that economic order is safely and securely restored. As with military confrontations, fiscal warfare demands weaponry, and the uh, fashioning of weaponry requires sacrifice. As we mobilized our forces and our industries to defend the cause of liberty in World War II, so must we mobilize our resources to defend our liberty today. Rest assured that the greatest burden of this sacrifice will be borne by the broadest shoulders. Using the powers vested in your president by the International Emergency Economic Powers of 1977, I am calling in all gold reserves held in private hands. Gold mining operations within our borders will be required to sell ore exclusively to the United States Treasury. Gold stocks, exchange-traded funds, and bullion will likewise be transferred to the Treasury. In contrast to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's gold nationalization of 1933, when FDR made his bold bid to rescue our suffering nation from the Great Depression, there will be no exceptions for jewelers or jewelry. All such patriotic forfeitures will be compensated by weight, albeit at a rate that does not reflect the hysterical inflation of gold stocks in the lead-up to this emergency. Hoarding will not be tolerated. Punitive fines of up to $250,000 will be levied on those who fail to comply. Retaining gold in any form beyond the deadline of November 30th, 2029 will thenceforth be considered a criminal offense, punishable by no less than 10 years in prison. All gold exports from our shores are henceforth prohibited. In retaliation for outside agitators' attempts to fray the very fabric of our flag, all foreign gold reserves currently stored with the Federal Reserve are hereby confiscated and become the property of the American government. Lastly, it is the intention of a conspiracy of foreign powers to yoke the government of this illustrious land with an intolerable and infeasible encumbrance from the interest on its debt. That debt was borrowed in good faith and in due course under any but the most extraordinary circumstances would have been repaid in good faith. But when our probity is returned with malice and betrayal, continued good faith counts only as credulity and weakness. Both sides need to honor an agreement for any contract to remain in force. What's more, this great country will not so honor its obligations as to destroy its very existence in the process. A nation conceived in liberty cannot conduct its daily business on its knees. As of this evening, myself, the Secretary of the Treasury, and the Chairman of the United States Federal Reserve, have declared a universal reset. In the interest of preserving the very nation that would meet its obligations of the future, we are compelled to put aside the obligations of the past. All treasury bills, notes, and bonds are forthwith declared null and void. Many a debtor has wept in gratitude for the mercy of a wiped slate, the right to a second chance for which individuals and corporations alike in all fair-minded judicial systems like our own have enshrined in law. So also must government be able to draw a line and say, here we begin afresh. Thus, let us strike into the future, our step lightened, our hearts gladdened, confident, in the endurance of the greatest country on earth. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Good night.
1: Um, We're in a time of, of cultural change and political change. Uh, I think more change is happening even that we're aware of. We're so consumed by the uh, whatever landmine the president has stepped on today that we don't realize actually how many other pieces are shifting in our culture. Uh, cultures can change with uh, dramatic shock. Uh, the mandibles is a vivid portrait of what can happen when you do have a shock and how, how quickly um, uh, basic norms of decency can disappear when people become desperate. Um, ch- cultures can also change because of f- frameworks and legal incentives that, um, that begin to push people in different, different directions. The title of, of this panel is supposed to be Utopia versus Dystopia, but in fact those are the same thing. Um, utopia means no place in, in Greek. There's no such thing as a utopia. Anyone who's tried to create one has created a dystopia. Lenin promised equality and efficiency and got massive inefficiency and um, brutal totalitarian government. Uh, what's happening in America, I argue, in, in, in try common sense is that over the last 50 years, we tried to create a legal utopia where there is a rule to do everything correctly. If anyone's unhappy, they can they can bring a lawsuit. Um, it's, it, it didn't work very well. It isn't working very well. It's profoundly alienating. I argue it's one of the main reasons people voted for Donald Trump. Uh, because what's happened is that we've disempowered people in their daily choices. People no longer feel they have the right to do what's right. As you use a few examples, tree falls in a creek in Franklin Township, New Jersey, causes flooding, the mayor sends in a backhoe to pull out the, the, the tree, and then the town lawyer says very helpfully, it's a class C1 creek, whatever that means, and you need a legal permit to pull the tree out of the creek takes some 10 days and $12,000 of legal fees to get the permit to do what's completely obvious to pull this fallen tree out of the creek. New York Times did a feature on the regulation of an apple orchard in upstate New York a year or so ago. This family-owned apple orchard, 5,000 regulations from 17 different government programs. The family had 13 clipboards in the office to try to, treat, to try to keep track of it all. They couldn't really keep track of it all. The rules were astonishingly granular. There was one rule that says, after you pick the apples and put it in the cart to take it back to the barn for washing, you have to cover the cart with a cloth to protect the apples from bird droppings. Now. Those apples have been growing on the tree <laughs> for, for, for five months. Uh, and the government has done nothing to protect them. Um, it's, those are just stories. You recall in 2009, President Obama got uh, $800 billion from Congress to stimulate the economy. A lot of that was supposed to be spent for infrastructure. Five years later, they did a report. turns out 3.6% of the money was spent on transportation infrastructure. Why is that? For it turns out that no one, including the President of the United States, had authority to give a permit for projects that everybody knew were needed. The process had taken a life of its own, and so it would take five, six, eight, sometimes more than 10 years to get a permit, whereas in 1956, the Interstate Highway Act was uh, 29 pages long, 10 years later, 21,000 miles of road uh, had been built. What happened is that we tried to create a government better than people. We woke up in the 1960s to abuses that were real abuses, racism, pollution, lies about Vietnam War, and we needed to change our legal values. We did change our values, but the smart legal theorists at the time said, we never want to have to trust anybody again. Let's create a system of law that will tell everyone how to do things correctly, and if you can't have a rule for it, like how you decide who's fair, fair discipline in the classroom, will give people the chance to bring a lawsuit to do it. Before then, there was no such thing as thousand-page rule books. There were, there were, you know, the, uh, the Constitution's, uh, It's about 7,000 words long. It has concepts like no unreasonable searches and seizures that protect us from police barging in our homes. It's four words long. Current federal law and regulations, 150 million words. No one can possibly know it all. No one can comply with it all. And it doesn't just make government inefficient, which it does, it's now changed the culture. We have a daughter who's a teacher. The rule in America today is you can't put an arm around a crying child. That's the rule. Who will protect you if somebody says it's an unwanted touching? Uh, the rule in any established business today is you don't give a job reference. Who who will protect you? Heaven help you if you make a bad joke. I mean you could just lose lose your you know you could lose lose your job over that. The uh, there was this incident a couple of years ago in Washington where a retired. Uh, a Parks Department employee was walking with his daughter, had a heart attack right in front of a fire station, and the daughter ran over to the firemen standing there and said, who were first responders, can you please help my father if he had a heart attack? And they said, no, the proper rule is to call 911. And they wouldn't go help him, and he died. I could, a couple of weeks ago, the same thing happened with the, outside the emergency room of a hospital where the person didn't make it in and the people in the emergency room, no, we're not allowed to leave the hospital premises and the person died. So we've created this society where we're now all trained to go through the day asking ourselves, can I prove that what I'm about to do is legally correct in the land of freedom? This fundamentally corroded our values. And so what's needed here is something that happens periodically. I think we're at one of these points in history uh, where we have to change the basic values of how we govern. The last time it happened was the 1960s with the rights revolution, as I mentioned before that, was the New Deal when we realized we had to have social safety nets to prevent people from starving during the Great Depression. The time before that was the Progressive Era. We finally woke up to the fact that laissez-faire was not a very good strategy when you have corporate bosses mangling children and and creating impure food, so we had to have government oversight. Before that, it was a civil war. In the history of this country, we fundamentally changed our values. We're at a point now where we need to do it again, but instead of having a villain like Bull Connor or or, or, or corporate polluters, the villain is, a, is is a philosophy, is a theory of governing where we're all run by this big anonymous machine, 150 million (laughs) words of law, that disempowers people from doing what's right. And what's needed is not deregulation, is nothing that either party is talking about, is to return to a goal-oriented framework where people have not only the right, but the duty to take responsibility and then be accountable for how they do. If you look at anything that works, Joe Riley is an old friend of mine. Take anything that works, you will find an official or someone who's making it happen. Not following, nothing in the history of the universe that was any good ever got done because someone followed a rule. It happened because someone took it upon themselves to make it happen. Life is too complex to fit the circumstances of life into square legal. So, um, we can talk about it more, but this is uh, both deeply philosophical. It has to do with the nature of the rule of law. Is law supposed to be outer boundaries? Is supposed to reach into daily life and tell people how to be free? Basically, this is what's happened, and it's also deeply political. And so, with a number of former prominent political leaders and Nobel Prize winners and others. Uh, my little not-for-profit is organizing a campaign, which will launch in January, to uh, for a movement, for a new governing vision for this country, because we don't think we're going to get anything sensible out of either party. And unless we band together behind a new vision, we're going to have our own presidential platform. So no candidate, just a vision. And we're going to have public forums all around the country, talking about well, what does it really take to fix the schools? What does it really take to contain health care costs? What does it really take to deal with climate change in a responsible way? Unless we do that, we're careening towards conflicts that confuse everyone and will lead nowhere good. Thank you.
3: Okay. Fair enough, it, 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 it's a little bit of a challenge to try to start a discussion between a novelist and a political theorist, somebody rooted in the, in, in the world of actuality. But since both actually project a future, I think that there's more than a little room for discussion here. And both actually begin with a, a similar analysis and a similar sense of foreboding threat, grave alarm. Uh, it's just that Howard attempts to chart a way out of this, whereas Lionel if you read the mandibles, and I strongly urge you to do so, uh, kind of charts a world in which we just kind of circle the drain. I mean, it's just a remarkably granular... Oh, and then
0: crawl our way out again,
3: <laughs> Give
0: me to give me
3: credit. Thank, I actually, one... That's I right. Sh- thank
1: God for Nevada. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: one thing that happens uh, in the mandibles that relates to yesterday's session is that uh, at a certain point in the Phase in, in the uh, process of economic collapse that so the family that's living on 55th Street in New York says that we got to get out of here. This is uh, savagery. And so they undertake to walk 194 miles to Gloversville, New York, which is kind of Joyce Carol Oates territory. And if you ever read Joyce Carol Oates, you know that that might not be the place to get away from it all. <laughs> it's probably a place where things are likely to pursue you that you don't even know. But, but the but, but the, the primary difference in your analysis seems to me that you take government as the locus of, of, of concern, whereas you take the economy. Um, Though
0: there's a connection.
3: There is a connection. I want to draw that out?
0: Well, I mean, especially at this point in time, we're especially consumed with political dysfunction. Um, Congress is paralyzed. Uh, whatever you th- think of Trump, he's not accomplishing very much. Um, Some people think that's a good thing, some people are frustrated, but uh, we we certainly have a major political crisis in this country, and we've never been in my lifetime this divided. But I still have my eye on the money, and I'm still uh, convinced that that's what's going to do us in. Uh, We can survive uh, disappointing presidents. but what we are building up with the national debt is going to bite us on the bum as they'd stay in Britain. Um, and you know, it, it, meanwhile, we stopped talking about it. We, uh, national debt is now 22 trillion dollars, and we're adding a trillion dollars to that every year. And at the same time, we're on track to uh, spend uh, two-thirds of the federal budget on entitlements, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. Um, Actually, by
3: the end of the book, 80% of the federal budget. By the end of your book, 80% of the federal budget is. Yes, and that
0: is, that is totally realistic, yeah. right? Um, uh, so in other words, the debt is destined to only get much worse. The burdens on government are getting worse and worse because of the age structure. What you read about every day, it, it's true. Um, so, how is that debt ever going to come down? How is that debt ever going to be paid back without degrading the currency into nothing? And that, that so that what I set up in my book, it's not been meant to be a, a prediction per se, but it is certainly a warning that when you have, you know, we, are, we already now have a worldwide debt problem, which is $246 trillion, which is 320% of GDP, worldwide GDP. I mean, at a certain point, you just, you just realize nobody's ever going to pay this stuff back. And then all of, all of the, you know, all that debt is assets on somebody's books, right? So if it's not paid back, those assets are fake. They're actually big black holes in people's portfolios. I see the end of money.
3: So it's not a not a solution if the entire world goes into Chapter Eleven.
0: Uh,
1: well, yeah, it is sort of it. I mean, if you read um, studies of the Hundred Years' War, for example, the, ty- the 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 kings just inflated their way out of mm-hmm. you know you know out of overspending, and, and it's a little bit like having multiple you know several forms of cancer. You're not sure which one's going to kill you. It could be the dead. It could be something else. You know, but but clearly we're suffering from from I think several. And they are related because the only way you can begin to address the debt is to restore a a value structure in an authority system where you actually start making trade-offs. and You start making responsible choices where you increase the eligibility age for Social Security. You you cut the ridiculous waste. Um, 30% of the American health care dollar goes to administration. That's $1 million per physician. Is not half of that or more is completely unnecessary, and and everybody knows what the changes are to to, to, get, to get rid of it. So, a lot of these costs and a lot of this excess can be dealt with, but you have to actually have a governing structure that that can make the choices, and a public that's willing to accept the the the, the trade-offs. You know, I disagree that that I actually focus on on government. I focus about you know my interest is the is the um, is the dignity and the uh, ownership of daily choices of each American. You know, I think what what's the worst thing about what's happened in modern society is people feel that they can't have a sense of ownership of their community or even increasingly of their own the ways, you know, their own sense of right and wrong. And uh, everything's become so legalized and so much pounding the table, give me my rights, all that kind of stuff that we've that the, the basic values of individual responsibility, accountability, um, uh, responsibility for the community, stewardship for the future, you know, not overspending. I used to have this uh, argument with Pete Peterson, who ran this big foundation, spent a billion dollars on it to try to cure the debt problem. I said, Pete, uh, give me some money for my, my work because it'll help yours. He said, no, I'm interested in the debt. I said, Pete, how are you going to reduce health care costs or anything else if you don't have a structure that allows, that actually is focusing on those things. Um, so, so they're related, but ultimately, I think that the, the shoe that's dropping now is the shoe that first dropped with, with Barack Obama, somebody people hadn't even heard of, this very impressive young man, who promised change we can believe in. That was 10 years ago. 11 years ago. Uh, it didn't exactly work out. So Trump gets elected promising to drain. Eight million Obama supporters voted for Trump who was promising to drain the swamp. That's not working out. He has no clue what he <laughs> means by that. He's just a feral genius for having the right, pushing the right bruise, you know, the right button. And, uh, and we're now in this election which is wild. This is wild, and, and no one's talking about anything, I think, that addresses the real problems of our society, including
0: the one you're dealing with. Well, the, the, talking and about the debt has gone, gone out the window, yeah. uh, and the, the Republic, Republicans used to at least service rhetorically the idea of, of uh, economic responsibility, but uh, they've completely abandoned it. And, you know, when he was running for, uh, in 2016, Trump actually did propose cancelling the national debt. I mean, that, that was after I wrote this book. Maybe I gave him ideas.
3: <laughs> Let me pick up on the, on the concept of the responsible individual, uh, Philip, because you lay such stress on that. One of the, the gravely alarming features of Lionel's book is that when you think about the economy, there is nobody who is responsible for the economy. I mean, it's just, you cannot corral it, you cannot, unless you're in a command economy in a particular country. But globally, you just cannot control it. So the idea of the responsibility, the responsible individual, is just not the pertinent idea. And in your book, you lay an enormous amount of stress on the responsibility of the individual. I'm going to read a passage from you and ask you to comment on it. You say, a culture not tethered to responsible individuals is soon dominated by self-interested demands. What do you mean by that?
1: Go through the day. Go to go school. Ask a teacher about parents pounding the table to give something for their child, irrespective of the limitations on resources. Uh, it's, um, um, you get values only if you uh, uphold them.
3: The emphasis on responsibility seems, I mean, it's, it's an enormous burden that that word is asked to uh, bear. What if I said, that a culture tethered to responsible individuals is soon dominated by self-interested demands. I mean, how can we trust individuals so, you know, not to be self-interested if they're individuals? Aren't they necessarily self-interested? Why should we trust individuals?
1: Because they're accountable. So, so we, to the people around them, they lose their job if they're jerks. They don't get elected
3: if, if they was, act irresponsibly. If your that were so, then your analysis would lose force. If that were so, then we'd already be in the place where you want us to be.
1: No, that's not true. I mean, we have people, we have a society where, take any particular school, where, where the teacher sees uh, someone misbehaving, they have an idea, and, and they don't actually have the authority to remove that child from the classroom. And so the irresponsibility of that adolescent, I'll call it, your response then ends up destroying the learning of every other child because we're so concerned about the unfairness of the odd teacher removing a child from the classroom that we've taken away from all teachers the ability to create a learning environment. And that same uh, example can apply to the culture. Uh, look at college campuses of students you know, shutting down perfectly responsible speakers because uh, they don't, they disagree with their views and think it's think it's you know it, it's irresponsible. So you end up getting a kind of a tyranny of of the almost the rabid self interested people. And if you don't have the authority, Hannah Arendt wrote about this. If you don't have authority structures you can say who can balance one interest against another, mm-hmm. then what happens is that people quickly figure out that they can get away with being the loudest person in the room. Donald Trump is the natural end of 50 years of relativism, where people can say, I want this because it's my right. And no one has the authority to say, well, what about the rights of everyone
0: else?
3: Lionel, do you? Do you... I'd,
0: say, <clears throat> I'd say that, by contrast, the mandibles is not about personal responsibility. It's about helplessness. And as you, as you observed, uh, the economy is not a person. And uh, very few individual people have the ability to affect the economy. Um, I don't know what uh, we can do as individuals about the value of the dollar. I mean, you mentioned that the most commonplace way of dealing with excessive debt is to inflate it away, but, uh, and that sounds very, all very impersonal. It's, it's, it's not, it's a, it's a form of theft on a fantastic scale of individual people. And uh, that's why I wrote this book from the perspective of, of single family who, um, at the start of the book, have, have, are expecting to inherit um, some money from uh, the great grandfather who wouldn't die. And um, because uh, in order to r- write about money, you have to have pe- people who have it <laughs> in, in order to lose it. but. You know, they lose everything, and so do all their neighbors, because the dollar no longer is worth anything, and it no longer works to... You can't trade this little piece of paper for an apple anymore.
1: But don't you think there's a connection between the, um, the, the kind of... Iris- the, the big-picture irresponsibility of, 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 of the way, you know, fiscal, and the, and the little picture res, irresponsibility of people no longer having the daily dialogue of what's the right balance, what's right here, what's wrong here. So we, we're not even talking about the big pictures of what's fair for the next generation. Is it fair for us to spend our grandchildren's money? I mean, that's another way of looking at what you're, what you're, or what, I'm, what you're I'm saying. Or I'm even
0: saying that it's worse than that, that, what we're, that we're playing with fire, and that means not only are we spending our, our grandchildren's money, but we are destroying the very currency. We are, we are robbing them of a functional financial system. And that is far more important than whether or not your taxes are very high. It actually endangers civilization itself, and I do not think that's an exaggeration.
1: Yeah, but don't you have I mean, but going back to getting to that point, don't you have to have... <laughs> A, a broader and richer public narrative of what it means to be responsible at every level I totally agree with you I that mean, there, we, there, we, is a, there is a
0: relationship between the people at the top um, you know voting all being, will, being willing to spend all this money they haven't got right uh, at least the, on the sovereign level and and then there's also the, the on, a, on a much more granular level you have people taking out too much uh, credit card debt and defaulting on that. And it's the same thing. Um, it, it's dishonest. You know. And that's where my Protestant upbringing comes in. Um, you were asking about that earlier in the interview. Yeah, both
1: of our parents were Presbyterian ministers. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so go figure. I think it um, shows. Uh, exactly. Uh,
3: we heard a lot about Montreat in the green room. Yeah. Uh, One thing that both of you mentioned, Lionel, as a kind of disaster, and you as a solution, is the simplification of government. In Lionel's book, uh, government simplification means that the Revenue Service has a single enforcement employee, (laughs) and we've given up no taxation without representation for just no taxation. We don't care about representation. Whereas you suggest that government simplification is greatly to be desired.
1: Yeah, completely. You know, I I, I, I believe in the American culture. Uh, You know, what we've created... Um, in this country over the last 200 years, and in and, and this community in particular, which has a wonderful civic culture, um, is, 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 is durable. It can be destroyed, but it can't be destroyed except with tectonic shifts like, you know, that, that Lionel was talking about. It, it can't be destroyed overnight. People still value the idea of doing what's right. They value balance. They value stewardship for the future. But if you have a... uh, If you give them a framework where that's no longer the vocabulary, the only relevant question is, what's your legal entitlement, and and what's good for your bottom line next year. You know, it's it's. uh, I mean, there are these irresponsible players who. um, Public unions, over the last 50 years, uh, collective bargaining only came in 50 years ago. They have um, secured promises for the future in order for support today, they give support today to current political leaders, that are completely unaffordable. And so the the state of Illinois is functionally bankrupt because of all these promises. Twenty-five percent of general revenues now go to pensions, and it's going to grow. Um, So we have these irresponsible uh, actions that are taken over the years, and we don't even have a narrative to talk about, well, who are these players exploiting the public FISC and making, in this case, Illinois, bankrupt? Why do we tolerate that? And, and um, so we have a, a set of principles uh, for this new thing. We haven't released it yet, but there's some outside. It's all of two pages long. But our last principle, seventh principle, is restore the moral basis of public choices. So people, no public choice should be made without both officials and citizens asking, is this the right thing to do? And in my world, it's not a deregulated world, it's a, it's a world of legal goals and principles, like the Constitution. And we want people to have to have that discussion. It doesn't mean they'll agree, they won't agree. And then we want someone to make a decision and that make that person be accountable to someone else, the same way the Constitution lays it out. And you have clear lines of accountability. You can't have a healthy culture unless you have those kinds of choices made. And instead, we try to create a government better than people. We try to create a utopia where everything would be the same and everything would be fair, just follow the rules, even though you can't know them all because there's thousands of pages and, you know, for the apple, poor apple farmer trying to keep it all straight. Uh, and it's profoundly alienating and dysfunctional.
0: Well, when I, when I was reading your your book, I uh, kept uh, having that coinage running through my mind. I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, the kleptocracy.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, Stephen
0: Tellish. And that that concept that it's it's uh, it's actually a problem in the tech world. Uh, right. That that it's it's like these patches. You remember those patches that you download? Well, it's actually all over life. The kleptocracy. In other words, it's lots of little fixes if you, you want to uh, visualize it it's like a bunch of band-aids all overlapping and and making this big mound but that no
1: one ultimately
0: designed right no so one that, intended so the government so that we had that, and no one would design it i mean no one would choose to design anything working this way and it just happened and the trouble is though i'm you know i'm constantly re- reading excellent books and, and hearing from intelligent people about how important it is to simplify the tax code and to, um, to get rid of all these unnecessary laws and, 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 and maybe to, to restore more responsibility. But how is it ever going to happen?
1: It's going to happen not because I say it should happen or anyone else says it's going to happen. It's going to happen because it's in the process of happening actually i'd like Donald to- Trump got elected you know we're having a debate in which some of the serious democratic candidates are basically arguing for some form of socialism it's you know and 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 clearly fomenting some form of class warfare and um, so we're coming into a period of conflict and uncertainty where where groups are being trained to hate each other basically and that's a period in which change will happen. It's not unlike 1917, you know, in another period. Who knew what was going to happen, you know, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in 1917? It's anybody to jump off. And we're in a period in this country where we're not getting leadership. We have a dysfunctional structure. It hasn't really been identified that way. People are arguing about goals. Let's have more health care or, or climate change, most of which I agree with. But they're not talking about how you get there. And they're not talking about why people voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, most people who voted for Donald Trump voted for him against their interest because they hated Washington. And um, Why did they hate Washington? You know, what is it about it? Why are they so alien? Because they hate Big Brother breathing down their neck. And it's a little bit of you know, what you write about in the mandibles.
0: Yeah, I think I think that a lot of the Trump vote uh, was uh, what I call a, a, a "fuck you" vote. <laughs> they, Trump voters knew they weren't supposed to vote for him, right? And he wasn't supposed to be the Republican nominee. Um, so it was it was not doing what you're told. And the same thing has happened in Britain with Brexit. They were told they were not they were supposed to vote to stay in the EU and resented the hell out of being bossed around and condescended to. And that was another fuck you vote.
1: Right, and I think there's a hunger. Here's my bet. I don't know how to organize this. I can write the books and, and get you know, the academic leaders and Nobel Prize winners to support me and people like Mitch Daniels and Bill Bradley and all those kinds of credible people. Uh, I don't know how to start a movement. Maybe you guys can help me. But, um, but I believe that there's a hunger for a new vision. There's a hunger for the old values. There's a hunger for people to say, I want to do what's right. I want to let the kids go out and play and not feel guilty about it. You know, a hunger for putting an arm around a crying child. You know, it's just just mad. Your warning labels, thank God for the warning labels. Caution contents are hot. I mean, what would life be (laughs) if we didn't have that warning label every day to look at? I mean, there's this contest for stupid warning labels. My favorite was the one, it's a five-inch fishing lure. That's a big fishing lure. And it says, caution, harmful if swallowed. <laughs> I mean, there's this, this literally, it's like stand-up. I was on the John Stewart show three times. He's just considered everything I was writing about stand-up comedy.
3: I, th- I think that there's a hunger in the audience to ask some questions. And so I think at this point, we should, we should reorient and get some lights turned up. I see one person right here. So if the microphone could find that person...
4: Can you hear me now? Thank you. Thank you all for doing this. It's been exhilarating. And I find that I agree with both of you and disagree with both of you. Uh, Lionel, what you say is exactly correct. It's an existential threat to our nation, the lack of physical responsibility as a country. It really is. And, Philip, what you say about the lack of personal responsibility uh, and the willingness for people to accept responsibility is absolutely the other side of that existential threat. I admire you for saying we want to have seminars and go around the country and do these things and you have your booklet there. But the real issue, we have to simplify. And it really comes down, we have to have legislative branches of government that function in the states and at the federal level. And the only way we're gonna achieve that is by getting rid of gerrymandering so that we have fair congressional and legislative elections where people can disagree and they have to put their values out and let people choose. And then we'll go back to, re- to electing people to go to the and to the Congress that will work together. And then we have to reduce the effect of money on our politics. Citizens United is absolutely you know, w- one of the key reasons we're in the trouble we are in today. And so I would just say to you, they're the two focuses we have to have. They're the two solutions that can get us people in our legislatures and in the Congress that will solve these problems, that will think about these things, can talk about them, not be paralyzed. And uh, just offer of that as one, one citizen's opinion. Yeah,
1: yeah. Can I respond? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're applauding, because I'm about to disagree. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think gerrymandering is terrible. I'm for public financing and such. But if you put 535 of the most virtuous people you could find in Congress, and you ask them, how are you going to fix the schools? Or how are you going to contain health care costs? Or what are you going to do about the debt? They wouldn't have a clue. There's no idea out there. There's no opposing government vision. You couldn't find, in my view, a person with better character than uh, Barack Obama. You couldn't find a more brilliant regulatory czar than Cass Sunstein of Harvard Law School. And he went into the Amazon jungle of red tape with pruning shears and came out accomplishing almost nothing because they didn't have a new governing vision. And what's needed is you cannot repair this system. You have to replace it with one that honors human responsibility and holds people accountable. Right now, all those words mandate dysfunction. So I want good people, but I think you'll get good people a lot sooner if they have a governing vision that's new and different than the one that either party's talking about. They need to run for something, not just run to be virtuous.
3: Lionel, do you have a response to that?
0: Well, you know, of course, I don't like gerrymandering either. I'm not sure. I think what, uh, you said in the green room it was a secondary-level problem, and, yeah. and, and I think I, I agree with you because um, what both of us are addressing are, is is on such an enormous scale that it becomes... Um, that's why I get so pessimistic.
1: Yeah, yeah we have a philosophy I, problem. I don't
0: think we have a system that is very good... At global revisions, global self-revision—it's not—it's not an accident that all liberal democracies have become kleptocracies. It's the way we pass laws. We don't—we hardly ever get rid of laws. We just pass more of them, and the, 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 the whole legal code gets huge and brings the entire society to a halt, and also requires massive. Of proportion of GDP to keep this mechanism going, and I just see it happening everywhere, and I I don't know what what how to get out of it aside through the kind of cataclysm that I can at least accomplish on paper.
2: We have a question in the balcony? the balcony. Hi, I was hoping to bridge between personal responsibility, uh, governmental regulations, and the economy. I would love to know both of your thoughts on the growing student uh, loan bubble that's in the United States.
0: Uh, it's potentially a catastrophe. It's one more, one more uh, weak point in the, in the economy. Um, I think one of the uglier aspects of, of the student debt, loan debt is that a student loans in this era of you know practically free money really ridiculous, almost no interest rates, and now even raising them a little, oh, now we have to cram them back down. Don't get me started on that. But the one good thing about that should be that student loans are, are cheap to service. But are, are, isn't it more like 6 to 8%? It's outrageous. It's outrageous. And that's what one reason there's been so much default and there's going to be a lot more of it.
1: Well, um, we've sold uh, young people a bill of goods saying if you just go to college, we'll give you the money, you can pay it back later, and you'll have a guaranteed career, and that's not true. You know, many of the institutions of higher learning are institutions of lower learning. Uh, There's very little rigor. Uh, There are lots of studies of this. We're not, in, in many cases, training people to do anything. We're just... Letting them pass the time and collect a lot of debt. And there's going to have to be a reconciliation, not unlike a bankruptcy proceeding, to deal with it. Because we've heaped up all this debt in people who haven't gotten what they thought they were getting, you know, by by incurring
3: the debt. Yeah,
0: they've been missold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah they're they're in a mis-sold. lot of instances, yeah. you're never going to make back your investment in right. the education.
3: Next question. Is there one right here?
0: In in front?
4: I'm sorry my question isn't fully formed but I can't help but think back to earlier in the festival when we were talking about um, a very disruptive uh, um, platforms for discourse especially in social media and I want I'm wondering what effect do you think that had on fuck you votes and on how we form discourse around creating m- moments of morality in inserted into governing and I just I can't help but think that that These platforms and this whole new landscape of of totally unregulated discourse has an effect on these things. And I guess I'm just wondering your thoughts.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, speaking of dystopias, you know, the the echo chambers of social media, bile and hatred and and identity politics, and the power of social media to drive people to, to see where people are looking, and then to drive them even to more extreme those sort of little communities and such is is, uh, is incredibly destructive. Uh you know who the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt is, wrote a book the coddling of the American Jonathan and I were meeting a couple of weeks ago and we we're talking about this, and he said he was very discouraged by the by the discourse and by the uh, by the uh, inability of college students to smart college students to discriminate between, you know, kind of core values and in fact, and, you know, and falsity, and all that stuff. And I said, well, what do you do about it? And he said, well, I'm very discouraged, but the one thing I would do is I would make it so that you cannot go on the internet anonymously. And I never thought of that before, so I subsequently was talking to tech writer George Gilder. George, you know, over the weekend, he said, I agree with that entirely. In fact, uh, I've recommended it. I've talked to a few other people about it, I think, you know, free speech is not about being anonymous and wearing a mask and, and spewing bile. It's about saying, here I, here, here I stand, and here is what I believe. You know, and then you can, you can judge and be judged. The internet is, doesn't do that. And I actually think, I mean, there's some complications because you want to have room for whistleblowers and such like that. But, but I, you know, I, I think we need to change the rules of the internet.
0: Yeah, I, I would say I, I'm very uncomfortable with the, the way that because uh, of the democratization of, of speech, uh, the, the shrillest voices rise to the, uh, are the ones that are going to be heard. And uh, this is obviously an engine of our current polarization. Uh, I, I don't do social media. Um, that's a luxury that a lot of uh, my fellow writers can't really afford, uh, but I don't want to spare the time, and most of all, I don't want to listen to these people. (laughs) Can you blame me? Um, And I've been predicting for a while now that people are surely going to rebel against it. And I don't know whether I'm right, and I keep predicting this, and I keep being wrong, Um, But I am hopeful that uh, we are going through this period of uh, having been transfixed with this new medium and oh we can all talk to each other and isn't it all wonderful but it's using up everybody's time and it's not making people happy, it's hurting a lot of people's feelings. And it's not really achieving anything. It's achieving a lot of negative things, but I I am not convinced that it it achieves much positively. And I I wonder if, in due course, there may be a rebellion against giving over to this medium such a grotesque proportion of your life.
3: I'd like to end the discussion and, I guess, perforce the festival by by asking you to locate somewhere in the present tense some positive sign, some indicator <laughs> of hope. Uh, because to, to read both of you that is, is to feel that there's a kind of desertification that has affected not only the economy, but the government, but and, and public discourse and technology, and, and that uh, things have not begun to cycle out of control, but that they have cycled out of control. And I wanted to know if... if uh, if you could identify something that you thought we might build on in response to all this.
1: Uh, Well, let me, uh, not quite answering the questions, but give an example of what a new system would look like. Australia had 1,000 rules for their nursing homes, which were terrible. America, by the way, don't go to a nursing home. They're terrible. Uh, And there's a horrible regulatory structure. It's just incredible micromanagement. And someone had the bright idea of replacing the thousand rules with just a few principles. So, have a home like setting, respect the dignity of the residents, things like that. The scholars scoffed. These nursing homes are gonna get away with murder, they're gonna be terrible. So, they went and, you know, a year went by, they went and studied it. The nursing homes were twice as good. Why? because people actually went to work, to the nursing homes, the nurses' aides and such, focusing on the residents. What can we do for the residents instead of thinking about compliance? It turns out, and I talk about this somewhat in the book, that bureaucratic structures actually cause people to go brain dead. No, seriously, it uses up people, working memory, the conscious part, can't deal with complex systems. So any system that's simple, so if you go to a good school, any good school, you will find people not looking at the rule books, whether or not they have them. My daughter taught at a really great school in Brooklyn, and I interviewed the principal, you know, number one on the charts, you know, in New York State, said, eh, good Park Slope, you know, good student body, but it was a good school. And it turned out that she spent, the principal spent half her day on Friday, filling out forms certifying that she and her teachers did things that they never did. And the purpose of her spending the day like that is to liberate her teachers from having to think about all of this compliance stuff that has clutched up over the years that forced people to do things. And that's just a little example of resistance that you'll find whenever anything works. And I think America's still a great place. There are lots of things that work. And I promise you, if you go find something that works, you'll find somebody that's violating the rules constantly. <laughs> you know? And 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 what we need to kind of institutionalize that, you know, is just take away the rules and hold them accountable for how they do. Lionel, the last word falls to you.
0: Okay, this is a little slant. Um, but uh The last couple of years, especially, have been incredibly politicized and um, the internet has become so politicized uh, which means that it's all about um, who's on whose side, who's winning and losing, who hates whom, especially about who hates whom. Um, I just got an email from my younger brother in Iowa who says that uh, he's having serious mar- marital problems because his wife can't stop talking about Trump. <laughs> um,
1: we should talk about this later.
0: All right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm prey to the, You know, I have to. I, I'm. I'm not being all goody-goody. I'm prey to the same thing. I get very exercised. I'm especially involved in the Brexit thing. And I sometimes have to ask myself why I care so much, but I get so involved in it that I don't ask myself that question often enough. I just had um, the most delightful two or three days in this town, okay? And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. I am thrilled that um, this city made an effort to preserve its original architecture when it, when it was, before it was too late. And it's just been such a relief to walk around, to look at beautiful buildings, to be in nice weather, to talk to people who are perfectly lovely and incredibly generous and have invited uh, the speakers into their homes. And it was, it's just, it has nothing to do with all of that. And I think what it reminds me is that there's so much more to life than what is consuming most of our brains these days. And part of the answer is to remember color and light and good companionship and a, a beautiful widow's walk.
2: exactly what I was going to say, that that the uplifting, positive, optimistic vision is that, sure enough, this festival has brought hundreds, well, actually almost 5,000 people together over the course of the last four days to explore ideas, to be exposed to great thinkers, great writers like those on the stage. And we all owe the festival um, so profound thanks for organizing this kind of an an experience. I will also say that um, in, in thanking all of the people who are responsible for having put this on, Buxton Books is not just a pop-up bookstore. What they've been able to accomplish over here is extraordinary, but they are on the campus on King Street of the Library Society, so if you enjoyed access to fabulous books out front, I encourage you to start supporting this amazing independent bookstore on King Street. Thank you so much to all three of you for giving us the final.